KPBS On Demand is supported by Sally Ride Science, presenting Women in Leadership, featuring panelists Ina Garten, Michelle Hanabusa, and Margot Lee Shetterly, sharing their stories and discussing ways women can lead a better future. May 23rd on campus. Tickets at sallyridescience.edu. A Fallbrook brush fire is spreading, prompting evacuations. Having a plan, making sure that you're, you're ready to go at a moment's notice because you might not have a whole lot of time. I'm Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Making space for more COVID patients, how a new field hospital in San Diego could help in the Imperial Valley. We are asking to have priority to move patients out of here as soon as Palomar opens. We were told this morning that it's within uh, 24 to 48 hours. Housing solutions for low-income veterans and lifting your spirits with screwball comedy. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating and Air, Restoration and Flood Services. Family owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating and air, and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980 with their fleet of trained professionals. Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhowe.com. Because we know how. Right now, there is a brush fire burning in North County. The Creek Fire started near Fallbrook, and Cal Fire now says it has grown to roughly 3,000 acres, pushed by overnight winds onto Camp Pendleton. 7,000 people are evacuated from homes in the northwestern parts of Fallbrook, including Deleuze Road, Main Avenue, Ceramic Road, Deleuze Housing, and the Lake O'Neill Campground on Camp Pendleton. Firefighters worked through the night to contain the fire facing windy conditions. Joining us with the latest is Cal Fire Captain Thomas Schutz. Thomas, welcome. Thank you for having me. What is the situation right now? So we're sitting at 3,000 acres, um, 0% contained, although we're hoping to uh, to get some confirmation on on the line. You know, it's tricky uh, when you're fighting fire overnight. This fire started at 1130 at night. Um, the, the main part of this firefight um, was all in darkness. And so there's a lot of uh, collection of intelligence. Uh, once once we get a little daylight on it, um, getting the aircraft up there, we did have some aircraft overnight um, scouting out the fire and giving us an idea of where it was burning. But I'm definitely getting a bit better picture this morning and, and hoping to, to have some more accurate numbers uh, to, to go off of. How close is this fire to homes? You know, it burned pretty close. Uh, the Deleuze Road has uh, several structures along it. Um, you know, for, for better or worse, the, the fire was being pushed by those strong Santa Ana northeast winds. So the, the fire never came across Deleuze Road. It, it uh, ran southwest and started pushing. Um, the entire fire was on Camp Pendleton. Um, and then really was about moving resources around. We, we uh, 
started our, our uh, fire attack where the fire started as per usual. But um, once it once it made a good run and got established, started running up uh, some of the hillsides, we had to come around the front of it, um, come onto Camp Pendleton and make sure that we started evacuating a lot of the homes in front of it. There's a, a number of housing communities on the base that were uh, right at the head of the fire. So still a couple hours out from the fire making it to them, but worked on evacuations there. And then we ended up evacuating the west part of Fallbrook um, due to fears that the wind could shift and we wouldn't have time to get those folks out of harm's way in time. So you are still doing evacuations at this point? Uh, yes, we are still doing evacuations. Uh, you know, just uh, in the last 10 minutes or so, uh, Sheriff was working on reducing some of those uh, some of those orders to warnings. So um, I don't have the, the specifics on that, but uh, we are working hard to secure those areas, make sure that the containment line's in, that these areas are cooled down so that we can get folks safely back in their homes. If you are living in an area that could potentially be evacuated next, what's the best way to prepare for that? It, it's important to, to first know what's going on. I mean, you look at the, the fire starting last night and uh, it's tough to get information in the middle of the night. And so really having a plan, making sure that you're you're ready to go at a moment's notice because you might not have a whole lot of time. Uh, sheriffs were driving up and down the road in Fallbrook over the loudspeaker trying to get people to evacuate because they're pushing it out at 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning. Um, so so being ready to go, having a plan for um, for your family members, for your kids, for your pets, making sure that that you're ready to uh, to load them up, that you have crates for the pets, that you have all your prescriptions and your eyeglasses and your wallet and keys and, and your mask these days and, and all the stuff that you're going to need um, to take with you. Because you look at the folks who uh, left their home at uh, three this morning, they're still not back there. And, and now I'm sure there's some people who, who forgot some things that they really wish they would have grabbed. And is there anything that people should be monitoring to uh, know whether or not their area is being evacuated? Yeah, a, a good start is uh, signing up for, for a reverse 911 system. The county has a, a good um, alert SD is what it's called. Uh, so you can go to readysandiego.org and sign up for that. It gets your cell phone on the same uh, setup that regular landlines get. So obviously a lot of folks don't have landlines anymore. That's the way that they're able to push out um, those reverse 911 messages when you're being evacuated. So um, sign up your cell phone, make sure you're signed up, readysandiego.org. And then uh, it, and then just make sure that you're following uh, local media, Cal Fire uh, San Diego on Twitter. We uh, push out notifications for all of, uh, you know, for, for any major wildfire in the county. Um, SD County Emergency is where you can go to see the, the emergency notifications that they pushed out. And make sure your wireless emergency alerts are turned on on your phone. Those are the same ones that where you can get the presidential alerts and the, the Amber alerts. Uh, I know sometimes people get uh, annoyed and they end up turning them off because they they get too many notifications. But the truth is, if, if you're in a deep sleep, this may be the only way that you wake up and find out about a fire um, coming to your back door. So please leave those wireless emergency alerts on on your smartphone to make sure that you uh, you have the best chance of getting notified when something's happening. Hmm. And the evacuation site is at Fallbrook High School. Do you know what kinds of resources are, are available for people there? Yeah, so the, so uh, the, there are uh, temporary evacuation points um, now, and so the idea is that they're not the, your typical um, evacuation site where people come and they stay, and it, it's um, it's not a shelter, but they do uh, offer a lot of services. There, they're able to get get folks um, water, snacks, um, get them taken care of, and a lot of times it's about um, these days with COVID about getting somebody a hotel room and finding them a place to stay. 
um, you know, we, we, we're, uh, we're not in a position where we can have people sleeping in gymnasiums and, and, uh, congregating all together. And so, uh, the American Red Cross works hard to get folks, um, set up in, in hotels and find them someplace to stay. And, and we work hard on our side to, uh, to try and work as quickly as possible so that, uh, we can get them back in their homes and hopefully they don't, they don't have to stay in a hotel for too long. And, and what do people need to know if they are actually driving in the area? Um, what roads are closed and what's the risk if you decide to travel in the area? You know, uh, Deleuze Road is, is very populated right now. Um, we have a, a ton of fire equipment working out there, especially anywhere past Sandia Creek. That's where they have the hard closure right now. But really anywhere uh, uh, along the west side of Fallbrook, um, you know, we have, we have hundreds of firefighters out here trying to, uh, trying to put this thing to bed. And so we just ask for your patience. We know we're, we're coming into your area and, uh, and, uh, it's kind of a burden when stuff is closed down, but, um, we, uh, we appreciate the support and we do just ask that, um, folks don't, folks don't gather to try and take pictures and, and, uh, you know, potentially put themselves in, in danger or put others in danger. And, and uh, we'll, we'll get out here. We'll, we'll do the best we can. But following the local media to get the, those, uh, um, those, those photos and videos is, is really the best way to do it. And do you all expect the winds will pick up or, or die off at this point? We're hoping not. Actually, we got a, a few uh, rogue sprinkles out here a couple minutes ago, which was refreshing. Uh, it didn't last long enough, but um, you know the winds uh, seem to have died down throughout the morning. We know the red flag warning was uh, was set to expire at noon, and it sounds like that's still going to be the case. So um, we're we're hoping that this uh, kind of uh, turns for the better. It sounds like we're going to get a, a bit of an onshore flow for a bit. Um, and, and really we're, uh, we're trying to just take advantage of the good weather that we have right now. There's, there's a bit of an overcast. It's a bit cooler. Um, the wind's not pushing nearly as hard as, uh, it was earlier this morning and, and certainly nothing like, uh, like last night. And, uh, we're, we're doing the best we can out on the line to, to take advantage of that. But, but right now weather isn't a huge factor for us. And, and that's a good thing. Is there any indication of what caused this fire? Nothing as of yet. You know, we know the general area and we do have our Cal Fire law enforcement uh, personnel out there uh, carrying out the investigation, but it is a bit of a process. They, it's uh, um, like any kind of fire investigation. There's there's interviews, there's collection of evidence, and, and we want to make sure we get it right. These fires are expensive and and uh, and uh, very challenging for the folk, all the folks who get evacuated and everything like that. And we, we, we need to make sure we're 100% on, on the cause before we determine it. I will say that roadside starts are, are nothing new to us. We do get a lot of roadside starts for a variety of reasons. Um, and, and the public can really help us with that part as well. Just making sure that your car is well-maintained, that you don't pull off into dry grass. Uh, um, if something's going on, you find a safe place to pull off that, that, that there's not vegetation and the little things like that, just making sure, uh, you know, you don't have a catalytic converter that's, that's spitting out pieces. And, and of course I, I would hope that nobody's throwing cigarettes out the window these days, but um, please just realize that every action that you do could could potentially uh, be catastrophic, especially here in San Diego County. I've been speaking with Captain Thomas Schutz of Cal Fire. Thomas, thanks. Thanks for having me. We will have updated information on the Creek Fire throughout the afternoon on All Things Considered and tonight on Evening Edition on KPBS Television.
Imperial County is one of the hardest hit by COVID-19 in the state. Nearly 21,000 people have tested positive for the coronavirus there. That's more than 10 percent of the population. 406 people have died. The El Centro Regional Medical Center is bearing the brunt of the virus. It had a six-bed ICU capacity in March and has increased to 49 beds today. And the hospitals can't handle many more patients. Even the parking lots are nearly at capacity. Some relief, though, is expected to come in the form of a field medical facility at Palomar Hospital in San Diego County. Yesterday, I spoke with Adolph Edward. He is the chief executive officer for El Centro Regional Medical Center. I started by asking him to describe the situation the medical center is facing. Well, we've uh, been really heavily hit this uh, community with COVID 2.0. The second surge uh, from the Thanksgiving wave is hitting us very uh, much stronger than the first wave. And the height of the first wave, we were at the highest number of 65 COVID positive. But now we're sitting today, uh, December 23rd at 1.30. And uh, we're anticipating probably that number to go up in the next uh, week to 180 and then over 200 COVID positive patients in a couple of weeks. And the governor announced that there will be a field hospital set up at Palomar. Um, will that provide any sort of relief for your hospital? Well, we have actually been pushing for that field hospital to become active in Palomar uh, starting in April. I'm glad that the governor is uh, finally getting it up and running. Frankly speaking, uh, it's going to help uh, decant the hospital here in Imperial County. And I know talking with Dr. Dave Duncan, the idea that we've been proposing all along, and I've been actually a very advocate of this, like I said, since April, pushing for it, um, is to open that hospital and increase the ICU capability there so that I can put out some of the patients that I have here there because I'm going to be receiving more ICU beds. Just to give you an example of what I'm talking about, we've gone from six ICU beds, we're now sitting at close to 49 ICU beds, and we have what is equivalent to 69 ICU bed capability here. That's a huge increase in ICU. So the Palomar Hospital, I wanna thank Diane Hansen, the CEO there and her team for working hard to opening that. That's gonna help us in Imperial County. Hmm. And the medical center has received assistance in the form of disaster medical teams as well. Tell us about that. Absolutely. We are now on our fourth uh, disaster medical assistant team. Um, we've had uh, three in the first wave. We have one today, leaving today. We're be, that, that team is being replaced by both uh, what we call Title 32, which is a reserve uh, unit coming in to, today at four. They start working tomorrow. And at the, the Department of Health and Human Services FEMA federal team that's coming in to help support us. Those teams are coming in at a great timing because we are not only have 10% of our um, um, employees uh, being affected but by corona, but also we're extremely tired and exhausted. We've been at this for nine months, and it is nonstop. And now we are deeper into the second wave. And, and what is the medical center doing to be able to add more beds to care for additional patients right now? So as you know, a lot of uh, hospitals, and I'm reflecting uh, of one of those hospitals, We've stopped, stopped elective surgeries um, two, three, four weeks ago in, in, into the second wave. Um, and we've converted all of the ORs into ICU capability. We've left two, of course, 
because we continue to have emergency surgeries that are required and we need to do those, but no elective procedures. Uh, mm -hmm. So the areas back there have been converted to, and the ORs have been converted to COVID positive uh, rooms uh, for, for patients that are coming in. We've taken over the PACU area. Um, we have expanded outside in the facility itself. You'll see us busting at the seam in the parking lot with tents. Uh, those have expanded our capability. We've added uh, new areas. We've, we have, I think, over 132 negative uh, pressure rooms in the hospital. Um, we're kind of physically beyond the capability of the structure itself. And now with the last two tents coming here and two additional tents uh, in the emergency room site to expand my uh, ED uh, bays or beds there, that's gonna be coming in the next week we're gonna be running out of even space in the parking lot for any more tents. So this is capacity. That's why Palomar is coming in very critical timing because we don't wanna turn anybody away. Mm -hmm. And with that in mind, what are your main concerns now for being able to treat the patients currently hospitalized? There is gonna be some critical conversations that will have to happen in the emergency room. We have to make sure that the families are aware of um, what their loved ones are encountering and experiencing. These honest conversations are difficult, especially with the fact that we can't really let the family members come in. Uh, we're trying to do everything and anything that we can to expand and extend the communication cycle. It's very hard. We're busy and we are attempting to connect with families, but at the same time, make sure that the patients are aware of their uh, clinical circumstance and what is gonna happen to them next. And that's always critical, but it's key in our conversation. And it's our responsibility to ensure that they know uh, how their outcomes are and where they're headed. And the ICU bed capacity in the county is, is almost non-existent, or is it non-existent at this point? Well, so I can, I can tell you that um, every time, and I want to make sure that you guys are aware, every time we say that it's near zero, at, we've got 32 COVID positive patients sitting in ICUs. We have two ICU beds left, but really if, if I count some of the med surge or medical surgical rooms that have been converted to accommodate ICU level care, then my number really is 69 beds. So we are doing everything and anything we can do, but the critical factor today is the ICU staffing. And I'm grateful to hear or have heard that uh, we're gonna be getting 10 more ICU nurses. If that does happen in the next 48 hours, I'm gonna expand my ICU capability to be able to accommodate the wave. Because unfortunately, the patients that are coming now are coming in with higher comorbidities, much sicker. And I'm sure you guys are hearing that the Mexicali hospitals have closed down. Even their private hospitals are closed down. A lot of the folks that have the, the right paperwork to cross the borders and or are U.S. citizens that can come back here are coming to us and they're driving directly to our EDs. So we don't know what impact that's going to be, but our ICU capability all is dependent today on our ICU nursing uh, many. What happens when you reach your your expansion capacity? Um, Palomar kicks in. That's why if I'm able to have Palomar, as I talked with Dave Duncan this morning, we're very clear 
I'm so grateful that the governor is putting in the resources to open Palomar. We can move uh, 10 patients out of the hospital here. That immediately frees me for 10 ICU capabilities. Um, and that is actually the level of conversations we're having. We are asking to have priority to move patients out of here as soon as Palomar opens. We were told this morning that it's within uh, 24 to 48 hours. Do you foresee a situation where you'll have to ration care? Well, ration care has been discussed all along. Crisis standards of care are very key and critical to understanding what conversations we have to have. They are key in moving forward on what we need to do. But the reality is rationing of healthcare resources in communities like mine that are predominantly Hispanic is a well-known fact across not just us, across border cities. What we need to do now is worry about who gets the last vent. But the state has promised, by the way, I just received good news right before the call that we're going to be receiving 10 additional comprehensive vents. So imagine, if you will, today I have a total of uh, 78 patients on vents. All of those are COVID positive. I have 22 available vents that are comprehensive. And I've just added another um, uh, 10 that's coming from the state. So I'm going to have 32 comprehensive vents. I have a total of 105 other types of vents like high flow nasal cannulas and BiPAPs. So I've got the ability technically to take care of them. Now, will I have the staff and the beds to be able to put the patient in the, in the bed and take care of them? That is the next ethics question that we're going to be dealing with. Hmm. And so how does the coronavirus complicate your ability to then do the expansions that you need um, without further spreading the virus? Well, so the good news is uh, we have, believe it or not, vaccinated 328 out of our 1,100 staff members so far in a matter of uh, 24 hours. And the vaccine is the Pfizer vaccine. We've received that through the distribution from the state. It came down through the county to us. Uh, Today, we have another clinic that we're setting up at 5 o'clock, and we're going to be vaccinating another 150. So we'll be climbing closer to 550, caring for our staff first because we don't want them to uh, get COVID-19. We have been doing a lot of work on their mental health and my mental health. So it's everybody that's involved. Every single individual's mental health has been uh, looked at because it's very key and critical. And then the last piece to all of this is to ensure that those teams that come in actually are rotated in areas where our team has been working nonstop so we can give them just a little bit of a break. And I'm not talking about a break so that we they can you know travel uh, in a van or a bus or a truck or on a plane for you know two weeks. I'm talking about just a 24-hour rest period. I'm talking about 48 days so that maybe get a meal at home, relax, um, watch some TV and come back uh, and be put on the, uh, the schedule again. Those are kinds of the things that we're looking forward to doing just to give ourselves a little bit of a break. But I'm going to tell you, we have a very resilient staff here. They've done phenomenal, and I can't thank them enough. And going into the Christmas holiday, we're hearing pleas from doctors across the state for people to stay home, not to gather with family and friends. What would happen in the Imperial Valley if the governor's prediction of nearly 100,000 hospitalizations came to be? Um, It's going to be extremely dark winter. I think I'm quoting Dr. Fauci, right? 
it, it's going to be difficult. I, we don't have the space for the numbers that you're talking about. I'm really hopeful. And by the way, I'd love for you to put out there that we've put a video that I made with my marketing team that says, don't be this dummy. We show a dummy, we show them connected to all of the vents and all of whatever we need to do to care for them. We ask people to be careful. Um, we ask people to think about their loved ones for 2021. Make sure that they're there for next Christmas, not this Christmas. We ask people to care for them, loved ones, not to want to have the meal this year and forget the fact that they won't have a meal next year because there's going to be one or two missing chairs from their family dining room. We ask people to think twice about traveling uh, uselessly for something that is not going to help them but will hurt them. I don't know what else we can do, frankly speaking, but we would love for you to put out the word because I know you guys have been active pushing people listen to you more than they would ever listen to us. Um, please stay at home. Please wash your hands and please keep the mask on. I have been speaking with Adolf Edward, Chief Executive Officer for El Centro Regional Medical Center. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, KPBS. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. Just weeks before residents began moving in, a fire destroyed a new housing complex for low-income veterans in East Los Angeles. The loss underscored the severe housing crisis for veterans in Southern California, which has the nation's second-largest homeless population. Robert Garova reports for the American Homefront Project. In September, Manuel Bernal got some news he and his team couldn't believe. Four years worth of work just, you know, burned down in a matter of hours. Bernal is president of the East Los Angeles Community Corporation, a nonprofit affordable housing developer. The massive pile of rubble that he's standing in front of was supposed to become desperately needed low-income housing in this working-class neighborhood. It was 70% complete before it burned down. Dubbed the Nuevo Amanecer, or New Dawn Complex, it would have offered about 30 units for low-income veterans. Move-ins were slated for the end of the year. We all see it, right? We walk through the city, we drive through the city, and there are encampments everywhere. Homelessness crisis in general is severe. Here in Los Angeles County, the latest count found about 3,900 homeless vets. The numbers are basically flat over last year, even though this population has seen bumps in federal, state, and local investment over the past 10 years. In an expensive real estate market, advocates say the money doesn't go as far, and in a city this big, it's hard to reach veterans in need. Being able to provide housing that is service-enriched to help homeless veterans is a tremendous need in this, in this city. It totally changes lives. At one of Bernal's organization's completed projects just a five-minute drive from the burned-down building, several veterans I spoke with agreed. They used similar language when talking about the 32-unit complex for senior veterans they now call home. Absolutely a godsend as far as I'm concerned. It's a godsend for me. I was on the street for like almost five years. It's a godsend. I'm even here. That was Fred Washington, John Wright, and James Williams. 
Williams entered the Marine Corps in 1979 and says he was trained as a sniper and later traveled around the country giving desert and jungle survival demonstrations. He lived on the streets for 20 years before he found a home at this complex six years ago. Williams says the stability has given him time to heal. What it did, it freed me up, okay, because being homeless is traumatizing. It messes you up. It can cause some real serious mental illness, you know. I was suffering from mental illness when I got here. Anxiety, depression, extremely bad. I had to find treatment. Williams and his neighbors were all saddened by the news of the burned down project, especially since they know firsthand what's at stake. I know veterans who have died on the streets. They never made it all, you know, they never made it. Retired Marine Corps Captain Leo Quadrado is president of New Directions for Veterans, a nonprofit that provides ongoing supportive services where Williams lives. He says his group has 510 units that it operates. With 157 that are in our pipeline. Quadrado says based on the latest homeless count and other factors, it's estimated that about 3,700 units will be needed to address the veteran homelessness issue in the county. There are also concerns that that could get worse based on the current unstable economic situation that we're in due to the pandemic. Back at the site of the Nuevo Amanecer project, Bernal and his team continue to chip away at the problem. It's been a difficult journey emotionally to rebuild, but uh, we're going to get there. They're hoping to complete reconstruction by the end of 2021. I'm Robert Garova. This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. The pandemic won't be the only reason for empty seats around the holiday table this week. With President Trump still refusing to concede the election, many families remain fractured. KPBS's Amitha Sharma reports on how some San Diego families are coping as Trump's tenure draws to a close. All it took was talk of the recent rise in COVID-19 cases for Jonathan Hansen and his brother-in-law to get into a dust-up. The brother-in-law defended President Trump's pandemic response. Hansen disagreed. He started raising his voice. I raised my voice. I said a curse word. All in front of their kids. Hansen says he reached for his shoes to leave when his brother-in-law... He grabbed the shoes, checked them out the door and then he just punched me out. Hansen says his sister then appeared and hit him too. He called police. I was in shock. It's my sister who I love dearly. It's my brother-in-law who I also love dearly. Family fights continue to erupt nationwide as siblings, parents and children, and couples divide over Trump. Rifts have developed over the president's comments about immigrants, women and minorities, the sexual assault allegations against him, his administration's caging of migrant children, his handling of the pandemic, and now his false voter fraud claims in the race he lost to President-elect Joe Biden. I regularly hear people sharing about the pain they have that they can't talk with their brother anymore. David Peters is a San Diego marriage and family therapist. Their parents won't talk with them anymore. The family just can't relax together. People are afraid. People are hurting. People feel shamed and bitterness is rising. Peters says science explains how emotions get so charged. Politics in the mind sits in the same space as religion. It's that deep because it has to do with which tribe I'm with. Hansen, a real estate contractor, says he's puzzled that his siblings and parents, all Mormon, have supported a president whose conduct contradicts their religion. 
That's not what we were taught growing up to love one another, to turn the other cheek, to be more compassionate and empathetic. He also wonders why his mom, a nurse, has been reluctant to wear a mask. She'll go off on, oh, that's an overreach of the government. They're overreaching. Hansen says the cognitive dissonance is unbearable. We can't talk. We can't even hang out together. It's too incendiary. Retired teacher and Trump supporter Diane Pearson says political arguments with her youngest child, Benjamin Goodwin, a senior at UC Davis, have cut deep. I was even moved to tears several times. I was so sad that after several years of college that he seems to have so far become pretty close-minded. Pearson says she likes Trump because he opposes abortion rights. She also favors his immigration policy. The wall is a good idea. And more than a good idea, I think it's essential. As for Trump's disparaging tweets, she gets the criticism. But at the same time, he's got a certain decisiveness and power in making decisions that I agree with. But Goodwin doesn't get what he says is his mother's unconditional backing of Trump. And this isn't just my mom. I feel like this is most Trump supporters. No matter what they will find a way to defend him. Goodwin is half white and half black. His mother is white. He believes Trump is a racist. He says race forms the crux of the gap with his mom. I see things from a both like a black and white perspective. My mom can only really see things from a white person's perspective. Family therapist Peter says he counsels his clients to apologize for heated exchanges, refrain from talking politics, and not to give up. The worst thing you can do is cut off relationships with family members. Jonathan Hansen and his girlfriend, Crystal Coleman, hope to mend fences with his siblings and parents. But she says they wrestle with telling them that everyone makes mistakes and that Trump supporters were misled by his lies. But then the other part of me goes, how could you not realize what he was doing? How could you not see it? How could you not hear it? And your silence was your consent, if nothing else. And how do we get past that? What Hansen knows for sure is... I miss sitting with my mom and having tea with her, laughing, talking about her grandkids. Amita Sharma, KPBS News. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. Staying at home, sheltering from a dangerous disease, is not exactly relaxing. So if you'd like to lift your spirits over the holidays, KPBS cinema junkie Beth Accomando would like to suggest watching some screwball comedies. In this interview from earlier this year, Beth checks in with Nora Fiore, author of the Nitrate Diva blog, for some suggestions and to explain why screwball comedies offer the perfect escape in these trying times. Nora, we met through TCM because we both have a love of old movies and classic films. Give us a little background on yourself and kind of how you came to love older movies because you're not old enough to have been seeing these when they first came out. No, I'm I'm a millennial. I grew up in the middle of nowhere in Vermont and these films really spoke to me from a very young age. My gateway to classic cinema was classic horror, but that quickly expanded to classic comedy through Arsenic and Old Lace, which is 
you know, this wonderful horror comedy hybrid. And I just got bitten by the bug. I loved the black and white. I loved that it showed a world that I had not lived through. They've been a very big part of my life. So for today, we're going to choose to escape whatever anxieties and stress we may have and look to the world of screwball comedy, which you have a real love for. How do you define what makes a screwball comedy? For me, it's more about a sensibility that it's these wacky situations that people are thrown in that a lot of times it's about reversing the social order where somebody who would usually be on top of society is in a position where they're more vulnerable and is then de- they're dependent on the working man to save them or it's this battle of the sexes where uh, you know it's all the gender tensions and roles in society are being subverted so they're they're generally a very anarchic type of comedy they're comedies that are really in revolt against the social order it, it's rebellion but it's rebellion in this breezy, flirtatious, extremely sexy way that, that makes it palatable. I mean, it's, it's worth noting that these films were made under, under some pretty strict censorship, you know, in the form of the production code. They, there were a lot of limitations of what you could show in ways you could uh, be irreverent. You know, you had to stay within certain moral confines. But writers, directors, actors, everybody had to come up with all these creative and unusual ways to evoke that revolt and that sexual chemistry without crossing lines of propriety. So I feel like those films are kind of the sense of breaking through barriers in all of these creative and zany ways, uh, this kind of subtle, uh, subtle revolt, revolt that is expressed in an acute breezy manner. Now, one thing that audiences today may have a little bit in common with the audiences in the 1930s was films were very much an escape during the Depression. Uh, During the Depression, however, people could actually physically go to a theater to seek that escape. So um, do you see that connection in terms of audiences maybe being able to find a similar sort of escape route through these films as people like in the 1930s did? Oh, absolutely. I think these are great escapist films. I think what makes them really great escapism is that they're wacky romantic fantasies that are still allowing us to process some of the underlying tensions in society. So I feel like you you just have to think of these as fantasies, as as a dream world, and yet a dream world that is still metabolizing and and digesting the crux of of issues that are still with us, things like, you know, class tensions and gender relations and stuff. Well, that seems to be a perfect point to start with the first film on your list, which is Frank Capra's It Happened One Night from 1934. And this sense of having kind of the escapism, but also that touch of realism is really clear in Capra's film. Yes, absolutely. I think this one has a little bit more of an aura of looking into the real world because it is about an intensely sheltered young woman who decides that she's going to flee, that she's she wants to marry a playboy and her rich millionaire father says, no, you can't do that. So she she escapes. But as soon as she gets out in the real world, she realizes that she doesn't have the skills to cope with that. And lucky for her, out-of-work reporter Clark Gable comes along and thinks, I'm going to get her story because by this point she's a sensation. You know, she's the escape runaway heiress. And in trying to get her story and, and keep her away from the cops and her father's hired goons, you know, they start to fall for each other. And it has, you know, they have to become very resourceful to stay one step ahead of the people who are, are, are searching for them. And it's fun to watch all the identity play that takes place as they have to do that, you know, the famous scene that they have to share a hotel room for the night, which 
pretty racy for 1934. You know, good girl wasn't supposed to share a hotel room with some guy she just met in 1934. So what they do is they string up a blanket in the middle of the room and they call it the walls of Jericho because nothing's going to bring that down. That's, that's their concession to propriety. Um, and, you know, the famous scene where Clark Gable, to keep her on her side of the room, starts taking his clothes off. You know, I have a method all my own. Uh, if you'll notice, the coat came first, then the tie, then the shirt. Now, uh, according to Hoyle, after that, the uh, pants should be next. There's where I'm different. I go for the shoes next. First the right, and the left. After that, it's uh, every man for himself. They pretend to be uh, a plumber's daughter and her angry husband. And, you know, quickly you can see this heiress who has lived this airless, boring existence is really starting to enjoy this freewheeling life that she's gotten herself into by escaping. Uh, you know, some of the most beautiful scenes are the ones that take place outdoors. I love the scene where they cross the river and he just scoops her right up. And then there's this dreamy sequence where they're they're finding a bed among hay bales and the moon shining on them. It, it just has this wonderful air of ordinary romanticism of the way in which the, the, for her, everyday life becomes a wonderland. It's this whole side of human existence that she has not discovered. And she, we get to see it almost through her eyes where things that ordinary depression era audiences would have been annoyed by, you know, this would have been the, the, the daily, the mundane annoyance of their life. She sees as this, world of freedom for her. So I think that's an interesting inversion in the film. As much as I hate to move on from It Happened One Night, but another film, which is one of my top films, because it, it features a couple of actors I adore, is My Man Godfrey, which is from 1936. And this stars the absolutely effervescent uh, Carol Lombard and William Powell playing a, a a homeless man, which usually we think of him as, as this very erudite, you know, Nick and Nora Charles and uh, very classy. Mr. Swall. Yes, yes. And so he's uh, a homeless person in this. What about this film um, do you find particularly memorable? Well, I, when I do think about it, I do always think about the sequence where Carol Lombard finds him at the city dump. Like you said, if only you could find William Powell at the city dump. You do not expect to see William Powell just hanging around. But I think that that's such a key part of the movie's commentary is that somebody from the upper class or even middle class, you know, might look at, you know, somebody falling on hard times and think that it's their fault or just discount them when, you know, you can see it's, it's William Powell, you know, it, it's, it's a film that really reminds you to always understand that you are where you are because you're, because of your luck in many cases, that the, the vagaries of fortune can take us all in strange directions. And I, I love that from the first, she listens to him, you know, her sister comes and well, the, the setup is that, Carol Lombard and her sister Gail Patrick are both these daffy socialites who are doing a scavenger hunt. They're looking for things to bring to the club and to show off so that they can win a prize. And one of the things they have to get is a forgotten man, which you know, in, in Depression era terms would have meant a man who, who probably was a World War I veteran who had lost his job, who had fallen on hard times and was living as a bum. Do you mind telling me just what a scavenger hunt is? Well, a scavenger hunt is exactly like a treasure hunt. Except in a treasure hunt, you try to find something you want. And in a scavenger hunt, you try to find something that nobody wants. Like a forgotten man. That's right. And the one that wins gets a prize. Only there really is no prize. It's just the honor of winning because all the money goes to charity. That is, if there's any money left over, but then there never is. Mm. Well, that mm. clears the whole matter up beautifully. You know, I've decided I don't want to play any more games with human beings as objects. It's kind of sordid when you think of it. I mean, when you think it over. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I haven't thought it over. 
See, I don't like to change the subject, but you tell me why you live in a place like this when there's so many other nice places. You really want to know? Oh, I'm very curious. Mm. It was because my real estate agent felt that the altitude would be very good for my asthma. Oh, my uncle has asthma. No. Mm. Well, now there's a coincidence. Well, I suppose I should be going now, shouldn't I? As with um, Ellie Andrews and it have one night, Carol Lombard's character in My Man Godfrey, she is open to hearing other perspectives. So she hires him to be her butler. And, you know, Pal and Lombard, they had been married and divorced by the time they made this film. But fortunately, they stayed on good terms. William Powell even recommended her for the role. He just thought she'd be perfect. And I think that their friendly chemistry makes this really a, a very sweet film to watch. Again, like it happened one night. It's a film about finding your better self because even the the wicked Gail Patrick comes around at the end. So it's a, you know, it's a film about personal growth. Um, and it's interesting because on the one hand, while it's still doing all the social commentary on the idle rich, it still does have this glamour that is very attractive. Carol Lombard in these to die for Travis Banton gowns and the fancy house. There is, there is more daffiness per minute in this film than maybe in any other film. So, well, you know, I, I make it sound like it's this serious social commentary and that's there, but the paradox of it is that's all there while all this crazy stuff is happening at the same time. That's really what screwball comedy did so well. So to wrap this all up, what do you think about screwball comedies offers the kind of escapism that might help people through some of this self-isolation? That's a great question. I think that the the sheer speed and amount of wit and joy in these films can really take a load off your mind. They're so fast-paced and they're so beautiful to look at. They're so well-acted. They're so well-directed in, in most cases that you, you kind of can't take your eyes off them. You can't take your mind off them. So they, they really do pull you out of reality for that span of time and plunge you into this other world. And yet, you know, it's not, it's not brain candy. It's not just totally numbing you out or taking you out. I mean, in many ways, I find that these films are like exercise for the mind because as I said, I've, I've watched a bunch of them many times and I still feel like I notice new details and new lines and new nuances to the characters. So I feel like they're kind of keeping you alert and keeping you engaged with human emotions, uh, with, you know, both high and low emotions, um, even while they are delighting you with this, this make-believe world uh, that Hollywood created so exquisitely all those years ago. Well, I want to thank you very much for taking some time to escape from some of the stress and anxiety of today's world. Oh, thank you. This has been a delight. This is uh, talking about screwball comedy has been a tremendously delightful escape for me. So thank you so much for inviting me to talk about them. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.